The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church One study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC1. And this is Secret Church One, episode six. Psalms, on a lighter note, um, <laughs> gives, us, uh, gives us a picture of the... It's good to come out of Job singing, okay? So that's what we do. <laughs> Psalm means a poem sung to musical accompaniment. This is basically the hymnal of the Jewish nation. They were intended to be sung. We're not going to do that together tonight, but they're intended to be sung. These are not just poems that were written to be in a poetry book. This is, these are songs that are intended to be sung. So you come out of Job with a song in your mouth. Written by many, many authors from the early monarchy until after the exile. Now, David wrote a lot of the psalms. We know that, but he didn't write all the psalms. You got others, Asaph, the sons of Korah, others who write that. They were written throughout the history of God's people. Some of the psalms we know what part of the history they're alluding to. Some of the psalms we don't know. But it's, it's great to be able to get a picture of how this was happening in the history of the people of Israel and this psalm was written. This was happening in David's life in Psalm 51. And that's why he says, created me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me because he had messed up and he missed it. And it comes to Psalm. That's just one example. It's that way throughout. You got five different books. Uh, five divi- oh, sorry. I skipped some stuff. The Lord is the sovereign king of the universe and the nations, expressing trust and praise the Lord for his greatness and goodness. He's the sovereign king of the universe and the nations. That's emphasized over and over again. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people, Psalm 96. Five divisions. Each concludes with the doxology. There's five different books of Psalms, and each of those books reflects different parts of Israel's history. For example, by the time you get to book three, you've only got one Davidic Psalm in book three. So, they reflect the history. Different types of Psalms. There's all kinds of different types of Psalms. These are the main types. Personal praise and personal lament. Personal praise and personal lament. Personal praise of God and personal lament over things that are going, that are difficult. You get into those Psalms and he's like, God, why is this going on? God, strike him down. And you begin to see this lament and you really see the heart of people come out in the Psalms. And, and, and it gives us a lot to wrestle with as we study it. Um, personal praise and personal lament. And then many of them are corporate praise and corporate lament, not just one person, but the, the people of Israel doing that. Wisdom psalms, royal psalms, other different kinds. You see Christ in a variety of psalms, the, she- the crucified Savior in Psalm 22, the shepherd in Psalm chapter 23, to tie these psalms to what's going on in the New Testament and sacrifice in the stone. Okay, Proverbs. Proverbs, 31 chapters. Each pro- proverb means comparison. Proverb means comparison in Hebrew. Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs. Men of Hezekiah also had a a part in at least writing some, at least compiling them together also. Foundational passage is really Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. That gives the picture of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom, wisdom being supreme. We need wisdom. We want wisdom. Solomon had asked for wisdom. Major themes that unfold. Attain wisdom and reject folly. Attain wisdom and reject folly. Walk in righteousness and avoid evil. Walk in righteousness and avoid evil. These contrasts are seen all throughout wisdom and folly, righteousness and evil. They're seen over and over again. And even in the pairs, the comparisons, you do this, it leads to wisdom. You do this, it leads to folly. You do this, it leads to righteousness. You do this, it leads to evil. Constant warnings throughout. 
Some people, practical advice for study. Many people read a chapter of Proverbs a day. That's what my uh, mentor in, in seminary, Jim Shaddix, he uh, reads a chapter of Proverbs a day. Many people do that. Um, overall structure, you see it outlined there. Let me give you a few reminders. Number one, these are figurative. They're figurative. They're not all intended to be taken literally. They're practical. They give practical advice, wisdom, practical wisdom. They're memorable. They're memorable. Now, here's why that's important. This is where we're at a disadvantage in the English language and the translation because these are written in Hebrew poetries, and some things translate into English and some things don't. We, we have sayings that we say. A penny saved is a penny earned. Uh, an apple a day keeps the... Dr. Way. Now, these are things that you remember. We know those. And they, they, whether it's they rhyme or they just go together, that's the kind of thing that's going on in the Proverbs. Only problem is once you take it out of Hebrew and put it in English, it just doesn't have the same ring. It just doesn't have that same picture, that memorable. And so you're like, how do you remember these? Well, if you think of it, that's the way it was for those people. Um, and just say, well, we'll do our best to remember, remember these things. But that's, that's a key to understanding uh, Proverbs. There's a variety of literary techniques. Alliteration, catchwords, poetic meter, allusions, metaphors, all these different things unfolding in the book of Proverbs. They're not guarantees. They're guidelines for living. It basically means they're good advice, but not exhaustive. Proverbs are not intended to be exhaustive for everything in life. They're good advice. They're guidelines, not guarantees. They're not, there's a difference between a proverb and, and maybe a promise of God, so to speak. Not that these things won't happen when we seek wisdom, but there's a difference there. The goal of wisdom literature is to apply the word to practical living, and that's exactly what we see happening. The, the law that had been given to God's people, it didn't cover everything. And so what we see in Proverbs, as well as other parts of wisdom literature, is the practical application of the law to things the law doesn't talk about in different areas of life. Especially, this is especially important for, for students, for, for youth, not that you would be mauled by the bears, but that you would, you would remember, that, remember these things. They're intended, many of them were intended to be memorized, recited by those who were young, because there's so many things in there that deal with, with pressures, even in that day, um, whether it was the tongue, money matters, friendship, the home, business contracts, a lot about sexuality in the Proverbs, a lot about honoring, I mean, honoring God by your wisdom and man's relationship with, with a woman. There's, there's constant warnings against, against men being carried away uh, by a woman who is evil. It's constant over and over again, just being on guard. So uh, Jesus ultimately is the wisdom of God. Jesus ultimately is the wisdom of God. Okay, two more in this section. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, written by the teacher. That's what it says at the very beginning. It says the teacher. Kohelet in the, the Hebrew means teacher. He's written by the teacher, which is likely Solomon. The key question that Ecclesiastes asks is, is life really worth living? Is life really worth living? This is a very interesting book. Verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Thanks for the encouragement. That's how it starts off. Meaningless. It's all meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Utterly meaningless. And that is, unfortunately, not just the message of the first part, but the message of the second part and the third part, all of it. It's just meaningless. Over and over again, life is meaningless. We, we live our lives and we die and somebody else inherits all our wealth and wastes it. That's basically the message of Ecclesiastes. It's depressing. It's a depressing book. Key words, man, labor, under the sun, meaningless, wisdom, and evil. Everything is meaningless. That's what the author keeps saying over and over and over again. That makes it a very difficult book in the Old Testament. But look for the major realities that are behind this, okay? We think, well, why do you want to read it then? Well, 
This book is showing us that God is the ultimate reality, the creator of all. What that means is all meaning comes from who? Him. You try to live your life outside of him, the ultimate reality, there is no meaning. The implications here for atheism are huge. That's where I think this book is is huge when it comes to defending your faith today and really showing who God is and his beauty and his grace. God's ways are not always understandable. You can't, it doesn't make sense. They don't add up. Life doesn't always progress as expected. The author over and over again saying the righteous aren't getting the good and the evil are. Why is that happening? It's not working like it's supposed to. And death is the ultimate equalizer. Now, I know that's a depressing statement, but it is true. In the end, death claims rich and poor, wise and foolish, and life is a vapor. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. Life is a vapor. It's short. And death will come to every single one of us. So, in light of that, don't forget Ecclesiastes is a book without an ending. It's a book without an ending. Remember the context of the writer. He's a teacher of wisdom, like Solomon, full of all this revelation, but he's longing for something more to have meaning. He needs more. The present world doesn't cut it. Thankfully, we have the opportunity to look at the book of Ecclesiastes through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death is the ultimate equalizer until Christ conquers death. And he is not equalized by it. And that gives meaning. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, if the resurrection is not true, then yes, Christianity is meaningless. However, if it is true, it means everything. So that's what unfolds there. It's it's a huge picture when you look at it in a lot of the New Testament. Practical application, enjoy the, the blessings of God today. Fear God and obey God's word. Invest your life on what really counts. This really counts. This really counts. Song of Songs. A contrast to the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> From depression to delight in the book of Song of Songs. Okay. Song of Songs literally means the finest of all songs, and it is fine. It is the finest of all songs. <laughs> it, uh, it is uh, that... that that, that's the meaning. This is, uh, Solomon is said to have written a thousand songs. This would be the finest of all songs. It is the song of songs. Now, here's where if you have come to secret church with your spouse, that this is where the Old Testament gives you what Hollywood can never give you on a date. This is, this is where it gets good for, okay. Like Esther... <laughs> Like Esther, Song of Songs never mentions the name of God. This is where I begin to sweat in house churches teaching the Bible because I just don't want to answer the questions they have. Um, <laughs> like Esther, Song of Songs never mentions the name of God. Those are the two books that don't mention the name of God. The theme, though, is celebrating the sexual love between a man and a woman. Three main characters. You've got the woman called, referred to as the beloved. You've got the man referred to as the lover. And the woman's companions, the daughters of Jerusalem, who are, who are friends. Now, throughout... Throughout history, there have been different ways people have interpreted Song of Songs. Three possibilities maybe that would be out there. One, a literal interpretation that says this is between a man and a woman. A literal interpretation. Second, a more historical interpretation. This is a picture of God and his relationship with his people, with Israel. So it's a more historical uh, interpretation. Third would be more typical, and by that I mean applying to today. This is a, a picture of Christ and his church. Many people have said the marriage relationship here in this book of Song of Songs represents the relationship between Christ and his church. 
when it comes down to those interpretations, and we could talk about this a while, but basically I believe it's pretty clear that the primary meaning of Song of Songs is that this is a celebration of sexual love between a man and a woman. You tie this back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you've got a beautiful picture of what marriage was intended to be that's expressed here. It's an amazing picture. Now, does that affect the way we perceive our relationship with God? Undoubtedly. Scripture is intentional to show us that the marriage covenant is a reflection of God's covenant with us. And therefore, the delight that is seen in the book of Song of Solomon certainly has implications, ramifications for the delight that Christ has with his body, God has with his people. But the primary practical meaning is dealing with with a literal interpretation of this is a man and woman enjoying each other. See the delight and unquenchable nature of true love where a man and woman take delight in each other without, without shame, to say the least. Okay, at that point, we are going to take a break. Uh, <laughs> um, we, we've come to the end. What we're going to do, well, I'll figure out what we're going to do during the, during the time in between now and when we gather back together. But hopefully you're beginning to see this is the foundation. What we're going to do in just a, when we come back together in a little while is we're going to look at the overarching picture of how God is revealing himself through this. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources from David Platt at Radical.net.